0: This is High Stakes from Gerard Phillips, Kate, and Hancock.
1: Welcome back to High Stakes. I'm David Schifrin with Gerard, and I'm also joined by one of my colleagues, Molly Kate, one of our founding partners and our chief innovation officer. And uh, really excited to be joined by our guests today. Linda Finkel is the president of Avia and Cynthia Carrazzo is the executive vice president of Avia. And just before we started recording, uh, we were discussing their roles and Linda said, if we went through everything that Cynthia does, it would take up most of our time. And so I'm gonna leave it at that, but let you all kind of describe your roles in a bit more detail. But Avia is a a good friend of uh, the firm, and they are a a transformation partner for healthcare organizations. They they focus a lot on driving capabilities that require digital tools to scale uh, and to advance care in new ways. And so I'm going to leave it at that. But Linda and Cynthia, if you would both just take a moment to kind of give the elevator pitch for what you all do and how you approach your work and kind of your, your role within the healthcare industry. And thanks for your time. It's just great to have you here.
2: Thank you, we're delighted to be here. I think you know we're great fans of your work and know that it's coming at a particularly important time. I would describe Avia's work always as starting with the core strategies of our health systems, specifically those uh, that work in service of, of really transforming the way they provide care in the community, the accessibility of that care, and the cost of that care. Our work typically starts with the four or five core pillars that a system sets out for its five-year plan and its immediate operating goals. And we work with them to build a digital roadmap that really underpins that in an effort to accelerate the success of of those strategies.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. So, we kind of wanted to set this conversation up uh, shockingly, everybody will be so surprised by this, in in the wake of the acute phase of the COVID-19 pandemic. And now we are beginning to emerge, not necessarily from the crisis as a whole, but certainly from that initial phase and beginning to see some trends shake out of, of what's happened over the last eight to 10 weeks. And I know there's just a lot of conversation right now about how much COVID-19 has accelerated the digitization of healthcare delivery. In in some cases, we're hearing about health systems that have been, you know, undergoing work to spool up a telehealth solution. It's taking three four years, and they got it off the ground in a week. Um, so, just talk about the rate of revolution in terms of the digitization of, of healthcare delivery in this moment and what this pandemic has has done
2: the, the change has been been staggering as you described we talked to systems who who did more volume in a day than they had done in a year when they look at their virtual visits one of my favorite stories is a system that described uh, doing a hundred thousand video or virtual visits this last month, and when asked how that compared to prior months, said, oh, you know, we, we've done 12 and, and 12,000, and they're like, no, 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 12. So the sheer um, rate of growth has has been staggering. And as you can imagine, you know, f- for us, we think it is accelerating a transformation that long needed to happen. And I think it's fair to say that for our members... You know, they had a bit of a head start. You know, they had almost all implemented some kind of virtual triage function. And as a result, they were able to very, very quickly help patients understand what care they needed, how quickly they needed it, where they might get it best. They were able to provide care digitally, not just one way, uh, but multiple ways i think that flexibility allowed them to scale really quickly remote monitoring was an area where many of our systems were already beginning to play but the pace with which they cranked up their ability to treat patients in their home while keeping providers safe in many ways you know was just one more example of the heroics of digital you know during this time Uh, i don't think that anybody was as prepared as they would have liked to have been. But just the sheer magnitude um, and the speed with which they were able to act and leverage capabilities that they had rolled out gave them a terrific head start. Yeah, I, I would contribute that. You know,
3: three factors helped this move so quickly. One, Everybody had been thinking about this and had some level of planning, you know, it really varied from those who are more sophisticated with detailed roadmaps that were typically two to three years long to somebody, you know, experimenting with something in a pilot. So, the, the but everyone was doing something. So the ability to to move quickly, building off of something was helpful. The command center uh, mode that everybody goes into when there's a disaster is is typical behavior for health systems. And I think that was very helpful in this case, is they were able to use their command center decision making to accelerate, take pilots to scale. Even if it wasn't going to be the long term solution, they were able to you know make decisions very quickly. And the third thing that was really interesting, and we should be really proud of in our industry, is that many of the Providers of these solutions were offering things for free, limited fees to get people going quickly, to remove the barrier of having to go through budgeting processes, et cetera. So, and I think those three factors contributed to uh, the ability for health systems to get these things up and running quickly.
0: As an organization that's been really dedicated and focused on digital transformation and being a true transformation partner for, for hospitals and health systems, if we unpack this swell of energy and, and innovation that we just talked about that has transpired over the, over the last uh, seven, eight weeks, would love to hear a little bit from both of you on two thoughts. Uh, what have you seen in that that excites you the most, particularly as we think about kind of where we go from here? And then what worries you on the flip side?
2: I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at it, Cynthia, and then I'd be interested to hear your views. You know, you know, For me, what excites me um, is just the genie is out of the bottle. You know, Patients loved it, and even patients who didn't think they'd love it had these amazing experiences, and some of the work that you had uh, done in your survey uh, just validated what a, a terrific and defining experience it was for patients. To me, it's exciting that so many providers adjusted. You know, the speed with which systems got 3,000, 4,000 providers trained to provide digital care shows they could do it. And it didn't take two years. It took two weeks. In some cases, it took two days. And, And any reservations that providers had, I think was outweighed by the fact that it kept them safe. And so for me, I can't think of a more winning platform from which these enduring changes will move forward. You know, so those to me are are probably the things that, you know, I found, you know, most exciting, which is it just, it worked, you know, almost unequivocally. And it made, it was the difference between systems who could meet their patient needs and systems who could not. And so for me, it will, most certainly inform how systems think going forward. I think the the thing that probably you know keeps me up at night is how quickly reimbursement and regulation will keep up with that change. And the temporary flexibility that reg- we've shown from a regulatory perspective will be critical to su- the sustainability of that. And so for me, I know that over time, there will be no choice. You know, the hardening of of consumer demand makes those changes inevitable. But for me, you know, speed becomes really important. Coupled with the idea that um, now we got to figure out how to integrate, you know, v- virtual care provision with on-premise, you know, care provision, and what's the workflow for a provider, and and how do you how do you take a burned-out workforce that was struggling before, just survived a pandemic and allow them to operate and provide care the way they'd like to provide care in a smooth and integrated way. So those are probably the things I think about as the next turns in this work.
0: Thank you so much, Cynthia. Anything from your
2: end? I would add to that, you know, what excites me
3: uh, is, you know, in the past when we were trying to help health systems think about using digital solutions to engage with their consumers and patients, you know the convenience uh, that consumers were demanding and are still demanding was interesting but not always compelling to the health systems to make big investments in change and you know in this time of pandemic you know the safety argument and the the need to drive to safety has become the the main reason to act and i think that will continue i think Convenience coupled with safety, as we think about what health systems are doing today and bringing back services that have been delayed, you know, those two pieces are going to be forever linked. And um, I think it makes it more compelling and also will lead to better care models as we're thinking about health systems who are starting to bring back care. And they think about, you know, using online scheduling and online registration tools to you know, get information sorted before the patient comes so you no longer have to sit with your clipboard in a waiting room. You know, the first step was, let's move chairs out of the waiting room so we can start bringing patients back. The second move, which will be more sustainable is, you know, less less need to be in the waiting room and virtual waiting rooms. And we're starting to see that happen. And that creates not only convenience and better access for patients, but also increased safety. And during the visit itself, if you can't do a virtual visit and you need to be in, the the clinic then you need you know different wayfinding and navigation tools that are able to keep the personal contact to a minimum and keep the contact in those most relevant places with the with the patient and the provider and even the the discharge process with contactless bill pay and contact follow-up virtual follow-up and more patient engagement through um, virtual means, just you know, really redesigning as Linda discussed, the you know, really marrying the physical with the digital, this physical experience is going to be quite different. And I'm just really excited about, you know, that we that the compelling reasons to act have become more compelling and the impact will be for health systems, more loyal patients, and lower cost to serve, which can only make our healthcare system better. <sighs>
1: It's so interesting because, and I wanted to ask a question, sort of a devil's advocate question about, you know, is there anything, any reason to believe that some of this is going to get walked back? And I think, Linda, you said you know, the, the genies out of the bottle. And, but you called them enduring changes. And and Molly, this goes to what we talk about, right? When in a crisis, you can get everybody aligned because there is a crisis moment. But sustaining that requires a whole nother level of change management. And one of the big things we talk about at, at Girard is, You've got to put things in the context of what it means for them, the emotional connection for whoever you're asking to change. And I keep trying to find something that would suggest that some of these new tools and new models of care that we've seen might get pulled back. But you know, Cynthia, to your point, that convenience coupled with safety. I mean, what is more compelling than that? But is there anything else? I mean. It,
3: I think Linda noted in her prior comments that the reimbursement and regulatory framework has really uh, been a burden on these changes in the past. You know, quickly that we were able to make some changes that enabled these changes to happen, but if if these aren't if the reimbursement is not sustainable and in-person visits with the full clinic infrastructure continue to be paid at a higher margin than the televisits, you know, we may see a rollback because at the end of the day, no margin, no mission for these providers. So I worry I worry about that. And I think there's a r- huge role for health systems to keep advocating for uh, lower cost to serve. Um, but I, I think that's kind of the one fly in the ointment. The, the, the other thing I have heard is, you know, health systems have huge fixed investments in clinics and other you know, institutional infrastructure. So, how they start thinking about that, not only for care provision, but for also back office services, um, how they start thinking about how they use their real estate portfolio going forward is an interesting thing to explore.
2: You know, I, I've, I've come to believe that just as health systems see this as an opportunity to do what they know they needed to do, where innovative leaders have long sought to make these changes. I think the same is true of thoughtful policymakers in Washington, and regardless of political persuasion or administration, I think there is a united commitment, a sustained commitment to changing the cost Mm -hmm. um, and effectiveness and quality of care in this country for all um, of our citizens. I believe that. When given this opportunity, there will be really hard thought before some of the regulatory um, changes that were made for COVID are rolled back. I would be shocked if, they, if, if CMS didn't find a way uh, to continue to move down this path in support of a, of a destination uh, to which I think they've always been committed. So I'm, optim- I'm optimistic.
3: I think the financial situation only puts an exclamation point on that. I mean, to the extent that we go back to the real estate heavy, labor heavy model that we have had, we are undermining our ability to lower the total cost of care, which is really our existential problem here in healthcare and has been for for decades. So I do think we have a lot of the stars lined up, even if you go back to basic financials as the reason.
0: And one thing that Avia has always talked a lot about, right, is that the, the digital solutions can more quickly and more cost-effectively address so many of healthcare's challenges, for all the reasons that that both of you have just articulated so well, right? That it's not brick and mortar; it can happen faster. And you know, there's a a speed to which and an economic element to which we can we can solve problems through digital. So. What about, um, so just taking this in a slightly different direction, I'm going to ask you to put your devil's advocate hats on, devil's advocate hats on for a moment. Are there things that we have discovered in this moment, in this great teaching moment over the last eight weeks, that we have seen that you know digital can't do a good job of, that we still need that human-to-human interaction on?
2: I want to be sure I have my uh, devil's advocate hat on firmly. <laughs>
0: In reality,
2: I don't think so. I don't think there's anything that doesn't have the potential to work or that's different than we thought. What we always knew that it wasn't all about digital. Digital was just the enabler of the care model. And that if you implement digital without thinking about the workflow, without thinking about the provider experience and, The other things that wrap around the technology, the technology is never going to be, on its own, good enough. So I think it's um, largely as good as the people process and reimbursement that goes with it. So if I think about where we saw things that didn't work, it was typically because they were too far behind the eight ball, they couldn't get to scale fast enough. Partially implemented solutions. So, you know, Cynthia has a great example. You know, personally, which she talks about you know, testing a triage site to get care, and you get all the way to the end, and it doesn't send you anywhere. It doesn't tell you anything. And so, what we have long believed at, at Avia is this is you know transforming care is not about a million little point solutions or or individual capabilities. It's really about creating a comprehensive experience for a patient and and so for me bringing ensuring that we are weaving together these capabilities in a way um, that create a, a complete experience and journey from start to finish is critical to making them successful and so we are i think we saw breakdowns it was largely where that was not happening Cynthia is there something you'd add to that mm-hmm. I think we could just
3: look before the COVID experience, based on the scarcity of behavioral health providers, there had been large gains in behavioral health, um, digital and virtual care. You know, video visits with uh, psychiatrists, uh, online CBT that was totally asynchronous, inviting, involving no providers that was gaining traction. Many of our members, uh, due to the dire need to expand capacity, had turned to these solutions with great success and you know, there was fairly large customer satisfaction as well as proven uh, moving the needle on the outcome. So I think even before the pandemic, we ha- started to see certain um, specialties overcome the uh, lack of human connectedness and replace, you know, using different formats and media to get the care that they needed to patients. So I'm very encouraged by that. And I also think that training, we're going to have to think differently about how we train providers to provide care this way. Back in the day when I worked in a health system, I was part of training programs for physicians. and my, The favorite story was the physician who stands with his or her hand on the doorknob as they're talking to the patient is communicating something to the patient, right, about how they how they're thinking about this visit. So similarly, we're going to have to think about you know when you're in a video visit, what types of things do you do as a provider to convey that you're engaged and that you care? So, I, And those are starting to emerge. I mean, one of the best things that's come out of all of this, in my opinion, is the rapid knowledge transfer. You know, digital is also enabling knowledge transfer in a way that we've never seen. Yeah, Facebook becoming a main media for physicians and other providers to learn about what's happening in other hotspots so that they can try those things in their own places. You know, We've seen a surge of members wanting to connect with each other, and we spend a lot of our time hosting small group sessions to share best practices. So I think how we get better at using the digital tools and redesigning workflows and interactions will really go far to maintain what's necessary from a human connectedness. I would just add one final thing, the thing that I think has been the hardest part on the human connectedness is we had gotten to a point where in healthcare, part of the care and healing process is the connectedness with care pro- caregivers, mm-hmm. having your family, and now in a situation where you need to limit the contact with people going in for a uh, very difficult surgery or even to have a baby without your family around you has been a very difficult adjustment to make. And I think there's some place we can spend some time as a society thinking about how we do those, return to that safely and how do FaceTime and other uh, video visits play a role in, in that other connectivity. I think that's it would be a very interesting place to, to focus.
0: Absolutely. So both of you have just shared so much about exciting things that you're seeing across the industry in terms of potentially longer-term impacts of what we've been able to accomplish in the last eight weeks and what the longer-term impacts of that might be moving forward on, on both the delivery of care, how physicians and caregivers are trained, how patients interact with their families during the care process, et cetera. Let's take that and, and kind of think about what the next, you know, year, two, three years looks like in healthcare. Talk to us a little bit more long-term about what you think some of the the more sustainable changes will be and what care delivery is going to look like moving forward.
3: Sure, so I I think we can't um, overlook the financial impact that this crisis has had on our health system. So I think one area that health systems are gonna be moving quickly in is thinking about improving productivity through digital workforce, automating tasks, that uh, are routine and error prone to increase quality of those tasks as well as lower the total cost. Uh, I think that's going to be finally come to healthcare. And from a consumer perspective and from a patient perspective, I do believe that the the changes that we're seeing with virtual care, interaction with AI chatbots, you know, triage and navigation in ways that are much more proactive are going to be enduring changes. And the one thing I would say to health systems, you know, like my biggest takeaway and lesson learned is those health systems that have done a really good job of having omni-channel commun- proactive communications with their communities are the most likely to build that loyalty and build the scale that they need to actually create this lower cost model. So, you know, that's a place I would start and a place I would
2: make sure really works. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, I, we spent a lot of time in this podcast talking about the changes around virtual care and those things that touch the patient directly. But there is no question that that every system is thinking about how it is they're either going to sur- you know thrive and in some cases survive what has been a cataclysmic experience and promises to continue to be for some period of time as they keep beds open for COVID patients, as, as time-sensitive surgeries begin to filter back in, um, as critical ambulatory visits slowly weave their way back in. Uh, I don't know a system, certainly not in our network, that isn't thinking about how do we come out of this and emerge stronger? Um, how do we use this uh, to make the hard moves that we knew we needed to make. So I, I forecast there will be a tremendous amount of focus on leveraging automation for important tasks that could be done more quickly, more efficiently, more effectively you know, via automation. And my, my great hope is that in a world where technology Makes it possible to predict disease, to treat disease more effectively, to get out ahead of disease, to to manage the health of people, you know, pre and post, that the vulnerable populations don't get lost in the shuffle, as we are watching unemployment skyrocket, Medicaid rolls are will inevitably surge. Much of the work we've done at Avia around uh, Medicaid transformation, it's not just about Medicaid. It's about all at-risk populations. And and that work is going to become even more critical going forward than it has been. And so I hope that what this time has shown to health systems is that they can have incredible impact outside of the four walls of their hospital and that and they have an in. in service of their mission that they have an opportunity and an obligation to do that and so that when things get better they don't get better for just a subset of the population um, and the people who can afford precision medicine but that we bring the full power of that across our country
0: that is an excellent thought and something that we should examine in our next wave of all of this because I agree with Linda 100%, I think this has really shown the industry what how important health systems are, A, and how we need them, particularly those health systems that have just set up these command centers, lost tons of money, right? But they're serving their communities. So uh, how to take those learnings and apply them for the greater good is um, certainly something we believe in around here. And an element of this is that. Oftentimes, these types of things miss the most vulnerable populations, and it is ironic because they're they're cost efficient. in those cost efficient ways. So it's a,
2: they're examples of the of the ultimate win wins Yep. You talk about improving, you know, people's lives, mm-hmm. uh, reducing the cost to serve, you know, for systems and, and you know for payers and for the country. To me, it it, it all works in in service of, of goodness.
1: Uh, Linda and Cynthia, thanks so much for your time. It's been, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you all. And, and yeah, it would be great if to come back in, I don't know, three months or sometime later this year or next year or all the above, and just look at what's happening as some of these changes begin, or, you know, they're kind of consolidated and we start to really see what the longer long-term implications are. But in the meantime, thank you. And, uh, we look forward to, to continuing to watch what you all at Aviar are doing and,
2: um, we'll talk soon. Shiffrin and Molly, thanks so much for the opportunity. Yes,
0: thank you both. Ladies, appreciate all your time and your smart.